0: Upgrade for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. That's quince.com upgrade. It's the four in. It's the four in. It's the four It's the fire in. Clock. Oh that was really interesting, my ear.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Fighting Cock, The Extra Inch. And if you thought we didn't have enough cocks on this older, more refined cousin of The Fighting Cock, then we have got something in store for you today. And it's not either of Martin Yol's brothers Dick or Cock My name's Windy and the first thing to say is a massive thanks to Cave at SNK Studios for letting us use their stunning studio space today. If you're interested in using them, you can find more information at snkstudios.co.uk. So, I'm here today with the recently rebranded Nathan A. Clarke. All the artists formerly known as Talking Tottenham Tactics.
2: How's it going, mate? All right.
1: Nathan, firstly, you've been temporarily promoted to sidekick and best friend in Barley's absence. How does that make you feel? Uh, it's a badge. I will wear it with honour. <laughs> and secondly, what prompted the rebrand? And more importantly, what does the A stand for? <laughs>
2: uh, you can... Uh, answers on a postcard for what the A stands for. <laughs> um, why did I do it? I, <laughs> I, I sort of think I might want to kind of do this thing that I'm doing in a more professional manner. So I sort of cleaned up my niche a little bit.
1: And you're kind of moving away a little from just uh, I'm, I'm
2: still going to be uh, Spurs focused, but just not
1: 100%. Very glad to hear it. And Nathan and I are joined by Extra Inch alumni Ewan Roberts. How are you doing, Ewan? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Yeah. Good. And you've you just got back to the country. Well, not, not
0: that long ago. It was a couple of months back now. Cool. But yeah, I had a lovely time. I think the last time I was on here, I was about to head off. Yeah. And then now I've... Yeah, significantly improved my travel repertoire, gone to quite a few nice places. Excellent. And now I'm back working at Metro, so that's nice. What are you doing for Metro? Uh, I get my official title is Sports Features Editor, but I guess because the last couple of months have been predominantly transfer-related, it has been a whole lot of transfer gossip.
1: And how do you feel about the market, the transfer, the January window and the uh, summer window generally?
0: Well, I think it's a weird thing because we probably might be slightly... Uh, negative towards it, that it can mm. be a bit of a dis- distraction, but actually I think the average football fan loves it, I think it's this rare kind of window in the summer where you get this amount of hope where you go, maybe this new player could be the difference between winning and losing the league and people love it, they go crazy for it, so although it's people kind of look down on it a bit people like reading transfer rumours.
1: So. And I know that I've been refreshing basically every blog and forum and, and Reddit frequently these last couple of weeks so uh, I can certainly get on board with that point of view And we're also delighted to welcome Michael Cox, the um, football writer, podcaster of Guardian Football Weekly and the Totally Football Show fame, the founder of zonalmarking.net, and um, basically he's recently published a wonderful book called The Mixer. Welcome, Michael. Hello, thanks very much for inviting me in. Thanks for coming on. Uh, With all this recent talk about zonal marking as a concept in the media, do you ever regret your choice of name? No, I think
3: it kind of helps, actually. It's good to have it out there as almost subliminal... Advertising. I mean, I started, the, I started the blog in 2010 and that was a World Cup where um, Mick McCarthy was commentating for the BBC and just used to complain about it about six or seven times a, a day in, like, you know, the Mick McCarthy voice. Zonal marking! Like that. So it was always quite good, subtle
1: advertising, I think, yeah. And I presume you're pro-zonal marking?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's not really one thing or the other for mm. me. I think, You know, I think, like, any tactic, it kind of depends on the players at your disposal and what they're suited to. But um, I think the constant, you know rubbishing of a system that has has served very many teams well throughout the years, Um, it's just kind of summed up for me the kind of um, weaknesses in in football punditry and analysis, certainly when I started the the blog, maybe not so much anymore.
1: Excellent. And before we crack on with the podcast proper, I just wanted to say, um, firstly, a massive congratulations to my good friend Simon, who's a massive Spurs fan. Uh, His wife, Ali, gave birth to their first child, Lottie, a couple of weeks ago, so congratulations to them both. And also to Tom Hayward, uh, the host of the Tottenham Way podcast, which is another terrific Spurs podcast you should all listen to. Tom got married on Saturday, and apparently there were various bits of Spurs woven into the day, which is great to hear, and I'm looking forward to hearing all about it on their podcast this week. So, the main reason we're together today is to talk about Michael's book, The Mixer, which I've um, just mentioned, obviously. So, I don't know, Michael, do you want to just tell us sort of what prompted um, writing about, about Premier League tactics?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, for anyone who's unaware, it's it's kind of a history of the Premier League, but but written from a tactical perspective, um, I guess the reason for it really was just there hasn't really been, or there hadn't really been, a really comprehensive book written about the Premier League, which struck me as strange, really, we're 25 years in, it's the biggest football league in the world, quite possibly the biggest sports league in the world, and um, I, I kind of thought it was time someone tackled it, really, so, um, yeah, that was the reason it seemed like something that hadn't been covered before, and... Um, I guess i was keen to get in there first before someone else did it
1: was it always kind of part of your end game writing a book or coming up with a concept for a book and seeing how you got on with it uh,
3: kind of yeah i mean i think um i think you know the, the kind of writing i do in terms of the tactics um it kind of tends to learn uh, lend itself to kind of long-term trends and just writing things like that i think when you do match reports all the time and just day-to-day stuff you can kind of get bogged down in in just stuff that is essentially irrelevant and isn't necessarily a tactical trend it's just something happened in a game so yeah i mean i think it's it's more suited to that kind of analytical writing yeah
1: and in terms of the sort of mechanics of writing a book how how did you get started
3: um i mean it was a long process of of, of research more than anything else to be honest um and that just involved watching lots of old games and i think to a certain extent it was there's a kind of pre-written narrative about what happened in the Premier League if that makes sense and I think it was about just going back and working out whether that really was the case so for example just uh, I mean a simple thing but went back and um, the first teams I looked at were the Blackburn team that won the title in 95 the Newcastle team nearly won it the, the, um, the season after and obviously Newcastle are framed as massive bottlers and Blackburn were obviously heroic but Blackburn won one of their last five games. You know, they completely bottled it. It was just, you know, United on the final day. Um, Couldn't beat West Ham, so that's why they won it. So just little things like that. Obviously, that's not a tactical thing. But I guess just kind of testing the kind of pre-established,
1: yeah, consensus about what happened, really. You mentioned there the um, Newcastle... Section which I, I really, really enjoyed in particular, um, and I genuinely laughed out loud at the prospect of Terry McDermott running a burger van at a race course, which <laughs> yeah. I had no idea about. Yeah. I, I love that, I love that anecdote, and it's kind of filled with lots of little snippets and anecdotes. Are they things that kind of had just stuck in your memory, or did they come from the, the research you did?
3: Uh, almost all from the research, really. I mean, the things that, that stick in our memory are uh, kind of general patterns mm. and you know what teams were good at and which players were crucial at what times, but um. Yeah, the the Terry McDermott thing is funny. I just saw it in one book I read. I think it was about, I think it was in a biography of Kevin Keegan. And it's the kind of thing that, like, it's such, it's almost like (laughs) such a serious allegation you need to double source it. And I couldn't find another source for it. I was like, I'm just going to go with it. But um, he's just released his autobiography, Terry McDermott. So I'm going to have to go through that and see if he said anything about the burger van because it's, uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a great mini story yeah he went from that to being Newcastle's assistant manager
1: and I mean there were, there were so many interesting bits of this um book and I would you know I'm not just saying this because Michael sat in front of me but if if you are interested in football tactics and it's kind of an essential read I would say it's it's covered so much in the Premier League um and there is there's there's enough on Spurs in there to keep you interested uh if you're interested in Pochettino's pressing is a, bit, a good bit on um, VS Boas, and also a, a really substantial chunk on um, sort of Redknapp and Gareth Bale as well, so there's plenty of Spurs stuff there. Um, one of the things that I'd totally forgotten is what an important figure Rud Hood had been. I mean, I, he's not a person that comes to mind when you're sort of thinking of influential figures in Premier League history, but actually, first as a sweeper, which was a unheard of position in, in the Premier League, and then as a really actually fairly switched on, tactically astute manager... Um, he he! It just came across what a sort of influential figure he'd been.
3: Yeah, completely. A few people have said that actually, which is nice because, um, to be honest, when I started writing it, I, I didn't intend to have him as a, a major character really. But then, when I was looking at the development of of defenders and the fact that he was, you know, he won the Ballon d'Or as an attacking midfielder, everyone knew who Routel it was when he came. But as an attacking midfielder, and when he turned up and said in his first press conference he was going to play in defence, it was. I mean, ludicrous, you know. It was it was like Lionel Messi coming to England and say he was going to play as a, a sweeper. It was just completely unheard of. Um, and just going back and looking at some of the match reports um, from his first game, which I think was at home to Everton, I think it was a 0-0 draw, and they just marvel at this guy who's playing in defence but can actually pass the ball and brings it down on his chest inside the penalty box. It's just great, and, you know... It was one of those, um, one of the stories that made me realise that essentially the development of the Premier League has been entirely about foreign influence. We all know that, you know, the Premier League is the majority foreign players, the majority foreign managers, but going through and actually finding any kind of British revolutionaries was really quite difficult. Um, And it was players like Hullet who, you know, particularly in the 90s, that time where there was the first superstars coming over, but also, you know, a very kind of old school English dressing room. Um... I think that's the kind of period that a lot of people look back really fondly on as uh, maybe the glory of English football in a way.
0: I think as well with Hullet, I always associated that Chelsea team that had all the foreigners in it as being a Vialli team. Yeah. But actually, I think you say seven players that Hullet brought in or were there already, yeah. something like that. So he had a huge influence on bringing more and more foreign players in as well and obviously he had an eye for it with the Serie A influence yeah, with definitely. Zola
3: as well. Yeah, I mean, like he was the first, uh, sorry, not the first, because the first foreign manager was um, Aussie at Spurs. But he was the only uh, foreign manager in the Premier League at that time. was appointed, I think, three months before Arsene Wenger. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, three months before Wenger. And those two, like some of the players that they sign now, you know, you look at Wenger, for example, getting Vieira. And these days, every like everyone who had a Twitter account would know all about Patrick Vieira. No one had heard of him at the time, you know, and it was just the fact that you know, he had the knowledge of a different country. And the same with Hullet, you know, the the players he signed from Italy, I don't think I particularly was aware of Roberto Di Matteo at the time, but he was an Italian international who, you know, Hullet just knew from Italy. So just having knowledge of a different league at a time when Premier League clubs still sent their scouts to, you know, uh, first division teams and, you know, youth games um, just meant that they had a massive edge in terms of recruitment.
1: We actually, I think Spurs are about to reap the benefits of that as well because we're signing this Argentinian centre back Juan um, who Pochettino obviously knows because he still follows Argentinian football pretty closely. So it's, it's still going on to some degree. But like you say, I mean, most people have got access to a wealth of video footage and you can download so many games now. It's uh, become increasingly easy for the average punter to kind of have a grip on the, on the players that are mentioned. So as soon as a name crops up on there. Uh, Ewan's Metro site, then uh, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's delving deeper and already know more than Ewan about that player. <laughs> and the other thing that, that really sort of piqued my interest was the, um, the Pomo, Charles Reap and Charles Hughes, uh, positions of maximum opportunity stuff, and the, the whole section on Allardyce. And I, I enjoyed the fact that you were quite complimentary about Allardyce because I've always found him an interesting figure. Um, and he's been, he's been written off by so many people unfairly, and I think it's partly due to his kind of slightly brash off the field character which is you know not always the most pleasant as we saw with how it ended with the uh, England manager's job but in terms of football he's he's been you know an interesting um, figurehead for so many years and he really did bring a different dimension to football management
3: yeah definitely I think he's a really interesting guy actually as you say his persona is very different from his management style which I think sometimes he i mean he always played up to the image of him being a kind of old school manager, so he kind of complains about it, but also kind of makes the you know he was complaining about that he wasn't getting a job because he wasn't foreign at a time when I think there was only about three foreign managers in the Premier League, so <laughs> stuff like that doesn't really make sense, but he he's a really interesting guy, you know really keen to look to other sports for innovations at a time when football was behind the times, and that bolton team i mean um. They played long balls towards Kevin Davis or Pedersen, a couple of other players they had. But, you know, when they had Jorkaieff and Kocha and Nicholas Anilka, this was Bolton, you know, a mid-table team or up a mid-table team. And I think Aladas has, has done more than most to really encourage flair players. Maybe not always flair football, but he believes in creative talents. And uh, I was quite disappointed, really, with what happened with the England job. One, because whilst he did, uh, you know, act... Wrongly, I'm not entirely sure what he did was a sackable of offence personally, and secondly, just on a footballing level, he spent 10 15 years saying, If I had creative players, I would uh, play better football. And then we're about to see him with Deli Ali and Lalana and Raheem Sterling, we didn't really get to see what he was going to do, so I think that's a great shame, really.
1: Mm. Do you think, I mean, I don't know why I'm, this just popped into my head, but do you think there's a comparison to be drawn between what Mark Hughes is doing with with Stoke at the moment and Aladice? Like you say, they're not always. Uh, the best football in the world, but trying to sort of fit creative players into a system somewhere. And Hughes has signed Hesse now to go alongside Shakiri or Shaqiri, however you'd like to pronounce it. Um, and neither of them sort of seem stokey, if you know what I mean, but both of them have been given pretty, a lot a lot of attacking freedom, I would say, under Hughes. And I think, actually, now you've mentioned it, that is probably what Allardyce was doing with Bolton 10 years ago, 15 years ago.
3: Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think... It's not a particularly exciting Stoke team, but it's, you know, for Hughes to take over from Pulis, and, you know, they were kind of, they had the most entrenched style of football in the Premier League, and he really has reversed that with lots of flair player players, and I think they've finished ninth all three seasons he's been taking charge of, which I think is higher than Pulis ever got them to finish. So he was he was told to, to improve the style, and he's improved the style and improved the results, and he doesn't seem to be particularly appreciated. I, I think Stoke fans are just a bit bored of his... Yeah. His football, but he's basically done a good job, and he, he generally has done quite a good job, Hughes. Without really ever too much, um, you know, he's never had a team have
1: massively punched above their weight, but he's he's uh, he's generally done quite well, I think. I imagine he'll be one of those managers who will be appreciated after he's gone. They'll they'll sack him in the search for something better, and then get relegated and regret it. Yeah. We've seen it happen so many times with so many different clubs over the years. Um, Bardi, who's normally on this podcast, uh, who couldn't make it today sadly, wanted me to ask you about head movement. Um, after the Gerard section, basically where Gerard and Rogers between them kind of acknowledged that Gerrard had to drop deeper because he lacked a skill to kind of look around him regularly on the pitch. And Bardi had remembered me mentioning the same thing about Tom Carroll, who obviously was at Spurs and is now at Swansea. And Carroll's got this kind of almost amusing knack of just constantly turning his head to look what's around him on the pitch, where if you didn't focus on anything else and just focus on that, it looked ridiculous but in central midfield, that's exactly what you need. You need eyes in the back of your head. You need to know what's going on all around you. You need to know what's happening when the ball comes to your feet. Um, and I always thought it was a slightly baffling but actual vital part of Tom Carroll's play. And it was just so interesting that uh, Gerrard had picked up on the same thing, or Rodgers had actually picked up on that as well. So Bardy just wanted me to sort of ask you sort of how you how you found out about that. Um, uh, that thing in particular
3: actually was from um, Gerrard's autobiography, which I. Th- I think was his third autobiography. Wow. <laughs> wow. I think they're called something like My Story, My Liverpool Story, and Stephen Gerrard My Story. Um, but the, the third one certainly is very interesting. It was written with um, Donald McRae, a colleague of mine at The Guardian, who does some really great interviews with people from all different sports. And uh, obviously it was ghostwritten, but it was, uh, you know, clearly he asked the right questions and and pun not intended, but kind of got into Gerard's head. Um, but yeah, no, I agree on the head movement. There was a great clip of, um I don't know if you guys saw it yes, uh, last season, of a goal Chelsea scored where Fabregas kind of assists it. And his head goes from shoulder to shoulder about 20 times in 10 seconds. And it's just really, I mean, I don't think I'll be able to run straight while doing that, <laughs> let alone, you know, be playing football as well. Um, but it was interesting and it was interesting that Gerard was talking about how the game had evolved and how maybe that wasn't so necessary at the start of his career because the midfield play was so much slower but it's just so intense now and teams you know, really started pressing him in particular Um, so it was something he needed to add to his game
1: Jack Whitthread from Facebook uh, messaged us and said bollocks to reading, listen to the audiobook (laughs) was excellent which I thought was uh, an important comment to mention because I also, well after I saw Jack's comment I, I had to had to go for the audiobook and have a listen and see what The fuss was about and it's very amusing. The accents that the uh, the reader puts on are, I mean ran, the accent that's for Ranieri was a particular highlight for me. Um, very, very amusing guy and it did add a certain something to it as well, a bit of colour.
3: Yeah, I, I must admit, like, I mean obviously it wasn't me voicing it, it was a voice actor called Colin Mace, um and I had no idea he was into the accent, so when I was into it, it was a complete surprise. But some some of them are great, some of the Eastern European accents. It's yeah, Georgie Kinkladze is great as well. I found his yeah. uh Ferguson to be quite soothing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's nicer than listening yeah. to Ferguson, isn't it? But yeah, it's a great effort as well because there were some players that, um, I mean, he must have had to research where they're from. I mean, you know, the big name players. You all know where kind of Jürgen Klinsman's from, but there was—I you know, didn't remember where Steve Hodge was from, for example. So he—he did his research as well. It's quite impressive.
1: There's a fair number of quotes in there as well, aren't there? So he's—he's he's got a lot. <laughs> got a lot. Of, he made his money. He earned his yeah, money. yeah absolutely. Let's Put it that way. Um, so what's next for for you? And and do you continue to run Zonalmarking.net? Is that still kind of an ongoing project, or? Have you kind of moved on from that now and are doing other things?
3: Um, I, th- I think I think I do it sporadically. Really, it kind of wound down a little bit when I was yeah. doing the book because that was a lot of work. Um, but I enjoyed doing the book. I'd quite like to do another one, but um, you know, nothing, nothing concrete as yet. Um, but yeah, you know, as I said earlier, I think I think just that kind of writing, that kind of tactics analysis, is is kind of suited to more long form stuff rather than day to day stuff. So
1: yeah, hopefully more of the same. And you did. Uh a podcast alongside the book, which I must admit I haven't listened to yet, but I'm very much looking forward to. Was that something you always intended to do?
3: Uh, to, no, to be honest, that was an idea from the publishers, from HarperCollins, oh. who um, they had some studios that I don't think they were using particularly regularly. Um, and, yeah, it was it was nice because, obviously, you know, the funny thing with doing a book compared to um, doing newspapers or websites is that you're kind of involved in actually having to sell it you know, you have a, a very vested interest in whether it sells or not, and if it doesn't, you know, then you're in trouble. So there was lots of ideas for marketing, and that was nice because it it wasn't just marketing; it was actually content, and it was content on top of the book. Um, so yeah, it was just nice to it was nice to do. I mean, putting together a podcast is difficult, as, as you guys know. Like it it probably sounds simple. I'd I'd been a guest on podcasts before, but when you're in charge of the running order and everything, it's it's quite a big effort. So hats off to you for getting it out all the time because that was just a kind of a one-off series. But to do it weekly is a, a huge effort. So. It's a big time commitment. That's yeah, the thing definitely. that people don't
1: really realise, I think. And, and and when you get people... Uh, when, when the podcast are a day or two late and you've got people saying, where's my podcast? <laughs> uh, it can be a little frustrating, but, um, you know, obviously we we all enjoy it thoroughly. So um, that's that's the reason we, we can't help ourselves. Um, but you're also a regular on where well, you were regular on the Guardian Football Weekly, and now the Totally Football Show, which has kind of poached some of the talent from the Guardian Football Weekly, particularly AC Jimbo, who's now hosting. Um, I, I mean, that's going great from a fan perspective. I think it's a really good podcast. They've had fantastic guests so far, and a long may it continue, but I, I assume you must love being a part of that.
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean to be honest, that was the first podcast I really listened to, you know, Football Weekly, when I heard James Richardson was doing a podcast. Um... So yeah, that was always fun to do and and the Totally Football show is going well. I think it's, um, you know, a a familiar theme. But uh, yeah, it's going well. It seems to have gone down very nicely and a familiar format. But there's there's so many football podcasts out there now. You know, uh, quite a few have been launched ahead of this season. Um, So it was interesting. I haven't listened to all of them yet, but uh, there's lots of competition around.
1: There is, and it makes it easier for people to sort of pick and choose what they're listening to. And if they don't like one episode or something, they're more likely just to give up on it and switch to something else, and I, I think we'll see more and more of that. Um, like you say, there's been a few um, popped up this year. The BBC have just um, started doing a, a football podcast. The Telegraph are doing a very good football podcast as well, and I believe the Metro... And no? That independent. Indy, it, yeah. Independent, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, why did I think Metro? There's another sort of similar paper who are doing one, I'm sure. Um, Maybe Standard? Standard, it? yeah. Possibly it's the Standard. And yeah, it just seems to be... Um, a medium that's, that's, that's popular and has caught on and, and just seems to be growing and growing. So we're going to talk a little bit about, following um, the book discussion, Premier League tactics over the years, and I'm interested to find out from you all what have been your personal favourite eras of Premier League football tactically. Maybe we'll start with uh, the youngest member of the podcast.
2: <laughs> uh, well, this isn't quite your question, but uh, uh, a chapter that stood out in your book for me was the Rory De Lap chapter, yes. uh, reminiscent of a previous article he did on Zonal Marking about him. And uh, uh, one particular passage uh, that caught my attention was the, the the fact that teams were so scared to give away throw-ins meant that they always wanted to play out the back, uh, and as a result made mistakes, which conceded throw-ins. I was wondering if you thought that um, a team like Liverpool, who pressed super aggressively or, or the like, you think they would... Um, benefit from a Rory De Lapp type figure in combination with their high-pressing style.
3: Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing that I found quite interesting going back and watching those Stoke games was, I mean, probably not that many people watched full Stoke games at the time, but everyone watched the highlights. Yeah. So the long throws you saw were always the ones level with the penalty area that created chances. But also, because he could launch the ball 45 yards and obviously can't play offside from a throw-in... It meant that even if you had a throw on the halfway line, the opposition would have to defend basically along the edge of the box. And that meant he could then sometimes almost trick them and play it short and then they had 20 yards of space themselves to force pressure. So, yeah, I mean, it's not a very... Obviously, it's not a very sexy way of it's playing not. football. But I do think it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting as well. Like You've probably seen from... like. Uh, on Twitter and stuff, there's a few teams that have started doing that old thing of knocking the ball into the corner from the kick-off and then boxing into press because, I mean, that's kind of like the most basic trick in the book. I remember Graham Taylor's England uh, team doing that in the, obviously, early 90s. But if you're going to play a real pressing game, you might as well just kind of set the agenda straight away and set your stool out to a certain extent. So, yeah, I mean, I do think throws are quite interesting, probably quite an underutilised part of football. It's not, you know, because it's, a bit unusual because you're using your hands. It's it's maybe not worked on that much, but just a good a good routine, a good set piece routine, you know, from corners or, or whatever, can be so valuable, particularly in big tight games. I always think cup finals often set pieces decide them. Mm, so, that's so true, yeah. and it's
1: it's an area where Spurs have struggled over the past few years. Set pieces, we we don't make the most of our set pieces or anything like that. Um, Which is weird because you've got quite a big team. Yeah, like, like big quite team a to him and, and, and good in, athletics. Athletics. in theory, a brilliant deliverer of the ball in Eriksen as well. Yeah, um, in in theory, in if theory. he could if he could beat the first man, that's that's yeah. the uh, that's the common frustration with Eriksen, that with, from corners he can't beat the first man so much that we've actually changed the style of corner now. So we're sort of playing short corners, sort of almost one twos to get it back to him a better angle. Um, Trippier was sort of brought in to take to to play one twos with him. Um, well, I think our, our best.
0: Set piece taker is probably Miller and he's been out for yeah. a year, so yeah. that's another issue. I guess. Yeah, Although did score one against Burnley.
1: That is true. That is true. So maybe um, it's improving. Maybe they've been working. It like
0: wasn't it. direct from the corner. It sort of took an awkward bounce. I think we, we can it? class that as a set. Snor- <laughs> I think we'll take. <laughs> we'll back. take it if you can get. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, I mean Ben Davis has whipped in a couple of reasonable balls as well, so I'm hoping that's a that's a thing to come. Um, in the absence of Lamella, but yeah, Ericsson for such a, a good free kick taker and a, a good crosser or open play, he, he does struggle from corners.
2: I, I I feel it's harsh to to focus on the individual in that case. We know that Ericsson's general delivery is brilliant, and if it's it's constantly failing and it's constantly hitting the first man, I think it, it it's probably more systematic than it is individual mm. in that we're aiming for. An inch above the first man because that's where the deadliest point to score from is. Mm. So the fact that we keep hitting him is 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 more systematic, I think, than a shortfall of ericsson and it'll be the same if a different player was taking them there.
1: That's but, fair.
3: We've well, yeah. scored a few goals with order world kind of near post headers, haven't you? So and Dara especially is yeah. really good and and near Dara post as well. Yeah, yeah a couple so. of years back we did, yeah. and it just mm. seems to
1: have dried up. I'm mm-hmm. hoping Davinson Sanchez, who who seems like a, a bit of a beast in the box as well, I'm hoping that he'll be someone who can attack the ball well. Um, but yeah, you're right, Toby Adler was absolutely outstanding in his first year at sort of meeting the ball at the near post, but it just hasn't worked out in subsequent years. Um,
2: yeah, again, I, th- I think that's systematic in that, like you said, it was two years ago that we were scoring sort of fairly regularly and it was always at the near post, but we're still aiming at the near mm-hmm. post and teams have figured that out <laughs> some time ago. So no wonder that
0: the goals have dropped off.
1: Yeah. You and how about you? What has been your kind of favourite? eras of Premier League football in terms of... Well, I suppose I me,
0: I always think back to the sort of era of the Big Four when mm. they were really dominating as being a period when the quality of the Premier League was so high. I think there was a Champions League semi-final draw where there were three English teams mm. in it, which I think might have been the first time that there were three teams from one division play all in the semi-final draw, and I think it kind of got some kind of animosity from the other European nations as well at the time. But there was four kind of superstar managers, kind of like we got now, and then you had... I suppose from a Tottenham perspective, it was not the most fun because we were always on the verge of breaking in. Um, but the quality of football being played, sometimes it was quite dull, but you always got a sense that there was kind of like a higher level of tactical understanding going on than there had been happening previously. So I always thought that that was a pretty cool time because you got a sense that you were watching the very best teams in Europe mm. as backed up by the fact that they won the Champions League three times over about five years, something like that. Or would it be just twice? It was just twice actually. Just twice but, but regularly,
3: I think we had the England had the defeated semi, sorry, defeated Champions League finalist four years in a row. Often came close. Arsenal lost in two thousand six. Liverpool lost two thousand seven. Chelsea lost two thousand eight. Obviously, Man United won it that year, and then United lost in two thousand nine. So the big four took it in turns to lose in the Champions League final, and um, obviously Arsenal never won it, and took Chelsea uh, another few years to. Um... Yeah, it's interesting. I mean that that time was. I agree with you, like the games themselves were quite boring. Particularly Benitez and Mourinho games, always mm. 0-0, 1-0, but it was a different kind of football. You know, It felt like, I think before they came, maybe in the late 90s, people used to talk so much about how if you watch a Champions League game, it's a completely different feel to English football. It was just more tactical, more patient. And I think that's when English teams just basically became continental teams. And There's still an English feel of football anymore, but I'm not sure... When was the last time a big team played English football in the sense it was, you know, direct? Pretty long time ago, I'd say probably probably Julio's Liverpool with, with Owen and Heskey up front. But there, you know, from then it was all about organisation and defensive resilience. But uh, it seemed to be when the, yeah, when the Premier League kind of really became the, the best league around.
1: Do you have a favourite hero of Premier League football, Michael? Would it be the same as you and...
3: Um, I think probably earlier, I really liked the kind of mid-90s that Newcastle team were, yeah. were fantastic to watch um, I think Wenger's Arsenal, whether or not you like the team kind of kick-started a technical revolution in English football I just think that was exciting when, when different teams were embracing foreign players, first of all and then foreign managers um, I also, you know, I always liked to watch kind of Spanish football and possession football so I also liked the period maybe around 2009-10 when Teams started packing their their teams with real good midfield passes. Um I remember Michael Carrick having a bit of a, finally having a kind of wave of appreciation, having been underrated for many years. Um, so yeah, I quite liked it around that time as so well. 2010, I thought there were some really interesting tactical battles, and probably for me, the right level of English dominance in Europe, if that makes sense, because, you know, much as the Big Four era was interesting. I always find it frustrating when you got to the Champions League semi finals and it was just you're watching Chelsea against mm-hmm. Liverpool again. Yeah. I wanted to see English clubs against Barcelona or Bayern Munich. Um so I think that period was nice because there was the odd team who got to the Champions League semi finals, but also there was some you know, there were some big teams that English sides really struggled with, the Barcelona obviously, but then Bayern Munich. So I thought that
1: level was quite nice. And how about the last couple of years? Because we've I mean Obviously Leicester, in a way, changed everything with what they achieved. Um, and I, I guess we all thought that their style might be adopted by other sides who would potentially try the same thing, but it didn't really pan out that way. And instead, last year, we saw sort of this kind of three-at-the-back fad, almost, with, which Conte brought to Chelsea and then was adopted by others. But even that hasn't seemed to have lasted. And this year, we've seen most teams go with the back four again. Um has, any, has anything interested you over the past couple of years, tactically?
3: I mean, I think the three at the back thing was just so dominant that everything was almost a, just teams trying to get around that, really. I think what is quite obvious is that whether you look at uh, Chelsea last year or Arsenal last year or even Liverpool and Brendan Rodgers, just switching to a three at the back, it seems to have a really good initial impact. But then kind of the level starts to fade. And I know Chelsea won the league. But those first seven games, they just didn't concede a goal. In fact, until Tottenham played them at Stamford Bridge, uh, we lost 2-1. That was the first goal I think they'd conceded in seven or eight games Mm. since going to that system. That sounds familiar. So they had that when they just, you know, no one could score against them. Then they had a period where they were winning every week but never keeping clean sheets. And then they had a period towards the end of the season um, when I think, to be fair, teams kind of took inspiration from Tottenham in that win in January, I think, at White Hart Lane. And teams were starting to kind of figure out Chelsea and, and Mourinho's Man United completely outplayed them at Old Trafford so it seems to have an initial impact and then and then he's off so I think maybe in general it will be a little bit of a, a fad rather than a long term trend but I think the, t- the only team who I think really is flexible enough to play two systems from game to game and within the same game is, is Tottenham so I don't think that you'll have the the same problem with teams working out because with Dyer and whoever else there's just such flexibility between the systems.
2: I don't agree. I think that the uh the three at the back is going to continue to grow in uh popularity a, a little more over the next couple of years and sustain for a little while. Um the reasons behind that are kind of compl- I'm actually writing an article about that. Um and it's a bit deep theory so I don't want to dive into it too much. Um but I, I I think the most interesting time for tactics is now. Um you mentioned the sort of the 2010 2011 sort of possession era where everyone wanted to play like Guardiola's Barcelona. but I feel like uh, the manager doesn't really have the, the full, deep understanding or coaching tools to implement the full thing. And now, sort of seven years later, we've blossomed into the era where we have possession, but we have possession for a purpose, possession with a reason. I think Bochettino is probably the prime example of a manager who wants a lot of the ball, but not for defensive reasons, not for the sake of it, but because he's going somewhere with it.
1: I mean, that's that's a really interesting thought, and it's something I was running through my head earlier. And, and we've seen the evolution of Pochettino at Spurs from this kind of really aggressive, high pressing team to a much more possession based style. Where I mean, we don't press like we did two years ago. It's it's kind of gone from our game to to some degree. Um,
0: I think maybe part of that is how opponents have changed mm-hmm. when they play against Tottenham, because they know that if they try and play, they're going to get pressed, so then they automatically go longer but then, that then allows the Tottenham back line to push up much higher and then it changes the way that you're getting the ball back in the first place. And then just on the subject of back three, with Nathan here, I think that they're more likely to become more and more in vogue. Traditionally, you would say a back three was a fad formation. I know in your book there's a lot of instances where when a manager was trying to shoehorn in a player, they would Mm. maybe try a back three. Mm. And I think back to... Roberto Martinez at Wigan mm-hmm. doing the back free to avoid relegation, which obviously there's a kind of link between Chelsea and Wigan in that Victor Moses was in both those teams. But yeah. playing further forward with Wigan, and now obviously as a wing back with Chelsea, but I always saw it as like this fad formation, almost like a last resort. We've got to try something. Whereas now it feels like teams are set up entirely. They're um, devising their transfer strategies around the players that they want in order to play a back free. I think to. Manchester City right now, they are gone back three, it looks like, and it looks like they might stay that way as well. And getting in Evans in order to help out with playing the back three. Spurs going even heavier on the back three, getting in Davison Sanchez. Yeah. And uh, Chelsea again, I don't think that they'll change from back three. Mourinho's even... I guess in anticipation of there being so many more back threes, has been trying a lot with a back three because I think he sees that as the best way to counter a back three is to match it. Yeah. So, And in fact, I think Victor Lindelof may have been bought specifically for the role of only playing in a back three. The way that he's talked about him, he's a ball player, we can't play the back three without a player like Lindelof who steps up and is the ball player. So it's kind of strange to me that, it, you know, maybe it is a fad, but if it is a fad, these teams have spent a lot of money in order to be able to play a back three effectively.
3: Yeah, I, mean, I think my, my concern about it is I'm not sure how many top-class wing-backs there are. And I think playing wing-back in this day and age is so physically demanding. you know. And obviously this links back to Tottenham because obviously Walker's gone and, and so far no-one else has come in. I just I don't think you can look at the Premier League and, and say there's that many players who are particularly good at playing the role. And even players you think who will be good at playing the role sometimes aren't. I mean, um, Hector Bellerin for Arsenal I think is a very good right-back. Haven't been particularly impressed with him as a wing back. It hasn't helped that he's been played on both flanks, <laughs> which is which is very difficult. Um and even Chelsea, I think, you know, obviously the system's very good. I think Alonso's very good at playing left wing back because he played there with um with Fiorentina very well. But I don't think Moses is a particularly good player at wing back. I think he you know, he fitted into the system, but if you were to look at the Premier League and get raw attributes, I don't think Moses would be in your top twenty five, thirty players of players who can naturally play wing back. Um, so it's it's about I guess whether the teams can get him in, and I think the fact that City have had to pay so much money for these players, who usually you know traditionally would probably be the cheapest players to to get. Um, suggest that there aren't that many players who can do it very well.
0: Yeah, actually I think you make a good point as well in terms of you don't just need two good wing backs. Yeah. Because of the physical demands of the position, you need four good wing backs. Yeah, exactly. You need backups in every position. I think that's a problem Spurs have now is that the backup wing backs have now been promoted to the sort of first choice wing backs at the moment, which is causing problems. Uh Manchester City's plan I think originally was to have Danny Alves and Walker for one flank. Which is, you know, you've only spent fifty million on one player because Dani Alves you get on a free, and then they could have bought Mendy and Bertrand for the other flank. But because Dani Alves went to PSG, suddenly they've had to spend twenty seven million on Danilo as your backup, and then they can't afford their backup left back. So I think, yeah, they probably will have issues as the season progresses in terms of not necessarily having enough stamina and athleticism to keep using the same players over and over again, twice a week, because it's such a demanding role.
1: Mm. And I think you're you're spot on. It was an interesting point you were making about. the sort of how how the transition to three at the back came about, and actually, you're right that shoehorning in an extra player was often the reason. Be that a striker, often if you wanted to play two up front but didn't want to play four four two, you might want to go to three at the back. But also, I think it is partly the rise the rise of the attacking fullback that sort of created that um, that new niche, the the want to have an extra man at the back to cover for these new attacking fullbacks. And with Spurs, obviously. We saw Walker and Rose do so much damage, particularly during that sort of eight to ten game period in the middle of last year, where they were absolutely unplayable and they were everything was coming through them. But it does feel odd to me that we signed Davinson Sanchez, and yet haven't replaced Walker, and we've got this ongoing issue with Danny Rose because I just don't think we can play through at the back with Trippier and Ben Davies. They're 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 unsuited.
0: You need so much dynamism there. You need so many different attributes. It's almost like defending. I mean it's important but it's so much less important than you have to be confident on the ball you have to be able to beat a man so you have to be almost like a midfielder in when you're in a more withdrawn role and then you have to be able to be a winger as well when you get into the final third so it's really difficult to get a player that has all those ap- attributes in one package which I suppose is why Manchester City spent £100 million on two mm-hmm. such-minded players.
1: I feel like what we need is Pochettino to to do what he did with Dyer and and convert someone from a an alternative position into a wing back. But I'm not sure if the players Sissoko. are in. <laughs> so is the only one, isn't he? And that's that's a slightly terrifying prospect, yeah. um, given his limited technical ability. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really want to talk about Trippier because uh, I know people will be expecting it. But I'm interested to get Michael's thoughts on on Trippier and Ben Davies as as, as, as potential wing backs. Yeah I, I
3: tend to agree I, I don't think um, I don't think either of them are suited to playing so I agree with you and I think they're good defenders but probably good defenders for defensive minded sides and back fours which yes. is just it's cross 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 you know there's no ticks there um, so yeah I think it will be difficult I think it will be difficult with those two players and if you look at the, the wing-backs who've, who've really done well, they've often been converted midfielders really rather than converted full-backs because it's such a different role, especially if you're playing so high up the pitch. I mean, Davis has played um, in a back three with mm. Wales, but he plays on the left of the back three, and that's, that seems to be the role for him, a little bit like Monreal at Arsenal. There's no suggestion he'll play as a wing-back. He'll tuck inside and you will have a more dynamic player out wide. So, yeah, again, but it's just tough to find the wing-backs, I think. It's tough to find good players who can play that role.
1: Yeah I mean I think Davis has shown some potential to to learn the role um and I'm sort of clutching at straws a little there I've seen signs from him that there are some kind of small steps towards progress um, in terms of his ability to to make those bursts forward and to arrive at the right time which is often the problem with the fullback It's making sure you arrive at the right time rather than just standing in a high you know standing at the end of the pitch and, and waiting for the ball to come to you you've got to be part of a unit that pushes forward at once and then you make that burst. Um, Davis also has the intelligence to know when to make a sort of out-to-in run yep. and, and get in behind his full-back on, on the opposite side which is always interesting
2: I feel like you can maybe get away with one wing-back who isn't rapid and doesn't um, push back their opposite number and if you're going to pick one of Trippier and Davies you're going to go for Davies because of his ability to tuck in, and play inside and, and be very creative with his passing for a full-back so that's, that's why um, I thought we're probably picking on Trippier a little bit
1: Plus, we just hate Trippier. Oh, yeah. Are there any other teams that kind of stand out to you this year as as interesting in terms of their their tactics or their formations? Um, Anything come to mind?
3: I'm kind of fascinated by what uh, Ronald Koeman's doing with Everton. Because they've signed so many players, I don't think any of them have particularly improved the team. And I think there's a real chronic lack of pace um, from the players they've signed in particularly. Uh, in particular. And I thought the game against City was really interesting because um, they played Calvert-Lewin out front. Well, I must admit, I hadn't seen too much. I didn't see that many Everton games last year. And just by providing pace, he gave them a completely different dimension. And you compare that with the way they played against Chelsea at the weekend when they just had nothing going in behind. And I just think getting those players... I mean, I'd quite like Barkley to stay there just because I think it would give Kim a really big problem <laughs> and I want to see how he sorts it out. But playing with Sigurdsson and Rooney, both kind of floating, both without any pace... Um I'm intrigued I just intrigued to see whether that works in the Premier League in 2017-18 I think probably not but um yeah it's not any great grand tactical plan but I think sometimes that's when you get the most interesting kind of teams uh, when you have a bit of a problem
1: Yeah I I, I don't get what he's doing with uh, these these signings I mean I think signing Rooney was probably a vaguely smart move because it's it seemed like a bit of a no-brainer he's someone who's affiliated with the club heavily there's a there's a link there um, he's obviously still got something left to give, albeit not necessarily at the level he was at previously. And I think when they're bedding in a new striker, then guaranteed goals is handy to have in the team. But then to sign Sigurdsson as well for such an extortionate fee seems kind of crazy to me. They they're quite similar players these days. Um, they both want to to have a lot of the ball in the same sort of areas. Um, obviously, we know Sigurdsson's brilliant from set pieces, so maybe maybe he's going along the lines of you know. Up in, up in the ratio of set-piece goals will, will ultimately help them kind of claim a, a Champions League spot. But um, they do seem strange signings, particularly, as you say, like they've got Calvert-Lewin waiting in the wings, Tom Davies, who I think is a really talented young player and would probably be better in that slightly more advanced role initially. I think he struggles a little bit in central midfield, just probably due to inexperience and um, lack of positional maturity, whereas if he was playing in the higher role currently occupied by Rooney and Sigurdsson I think he'd have that freedom of expression and it would allow him to get into the box more regularly um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how Koeman fits all these players in over the course of a year and, and what he decides to do
2: It, it screams of a, a disconnect between the manager and, and the recruitment staff in that he likes to play a counter-attacking style he likes to play with width and with crosses and they've bought a, a bunch of slow number 10s um, and that'll be different when Balassi's back when Lukman's uh, in the squad again but it's, it's a weird situation right now. I think the, the most tactically interesting team in the league, other than Spurs, uh, are across town from Everton, in Liverpool, in, in, in the huge difference between their performance against teams who sit back and teams who come out. And it's two completely different monsters. We saw what they did to Arsenal the other day, but when a team sit back, they, they really struggle to break them down. I, I, I find that <laughs> fascinating every week, that it's, it's one or the other. And
0: curiously, actually, with that... Their recruitment then, as well, it seems that they've got more players who do what they already do well yep. in the really fast, quick players, and maybe getting another one in Thomas Lamar, rather than getting the players that open up defenses that sit deep. And the one player that they do have that does that, Felipe Coutinho, may now be leaving for Barcelona as well. So that's a, yeah, that is a weird one.
1: And also the fact that they still haven't signed a centre back that can actually <laughs> hold their defense together because that's a key weakness. And it seems like they're they're doing a similar thing to what Arsenal have done over many years, which is constantly readdress the the problem that's not doesn't need to be readdressed, which is breaking teams down. And actually, if you just buy a, a really top class centre back, you'd probably win the league. Let I me mean, I really think Liverpool could win the league if they had a, a decent defence and, and goalkeeper. Um but like you say, going for the seems very odd when they already have this huge array of attacking options, you all play in a slightly similar way. Um the other team of interest is Huddersfield and I don't really know a great deal about them, but I've been fascinated by their early performances and I'm Interested to see how that pans out for them, because I know their squad's not the deepest. So when the um, the legs start getting a bit heavy, come sort of February March, will they still have the steam to carry on? I'm fascinated to see how they do. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit also about Michael's recent piece for ESPN, which got a fair amount of traction um, in the Spurs community. I mean, primarily because Michael's a sort of seen as a reliable um, source on and all things football and tactics, but. Um, Michael basically wrote that Spurs were having the best summer, essentially by, you know, having a having a sense of continuity in the squad. Um, and I wanted to know from Michael whether his perspective had changed post Danny Rose interview.
3: Yeah, not really. I, I mean, I found what Danny Rose said really just baffling. Really, I, I kind of sympathised with his, his general vibe, but I just thought it was completely unprofessional. And I don't quite know. You, you guys might be able to enlighten me on the timing whether he said it a couple of days before it was came out, or whether it was. You know, a few weeks before, and and it was held back, but it, it just struck me as really odd. Um, no, I mean, I, I still think Spurs have done really well. I expected them to have brought in a, a proper replacement for Walker by now. And I think it's clear that there's a need for another option in in the final third. I think a really good goal scoring wide player really would would sort Tottenham out. That's obvious. But I, I still think the starting point has to be the fact that Tottenham are moving stadium, and it's just such a huge uh, financial undertaking. You look at what happened to Arsenal when they moved stadium. They went from winning the league unbeaten to being, you know, the, well, to a certain extent, to the state they are in now, you know. But years of not winning trophies, and almost every club that has won, sorry, almost every other club that has built a stadium in the Premier League era. You look at Middlesbrough, Southampton, Sunderland, Derby, Leicester, Coventry. All got relegated. And so, I'm not saying the time shouldn't be pleased to not get relegated, but everyone takes a massive step back because financially, it's such a huge outlay. And I think it's clear. You look at Spurs, and they've got by far the best centre-back combination in the league. Possibly the best two individual centre-backs in the league, if they're not playing together. Um, and Deli Ali and Harry Kane and Christian Eriksen. I think we get in any other team. And when you look at the kind of the wages that Tottenham are play, uh, paying the players, which isn't comparable to what the other teams are paying, I think to keep them at the club is just remarkable. Like really, really good. And it's not just the fact that they've stayed, but it's that. There hasn't really been any sagas, you know. You look at, um, say, Arsenal with Sanchez or City with Agüero to a certain extent. But if those players stay, there's been a you know, it's been a summer of upheaval of uncertainty, and managers can't really work with the team. And I think the fact that Pochettino's always know the players he's going to be working with is a massive boost. And so, you know, I should clarify that the, the article was kind of 20th of July and I thought Tottenham would have done a bit of business. Mm. <laughs> but I, I, it's boring, but I just think when you've got such a settled team, the most cohesive team in the league, in my opinion, and probably the youngest team or certainly the the team where there's so many players coming into peak ages, um, I don't think many teams have done better. There's lots of teams who've signed a lot of players. Everton, West Ham. I don't think they've signed anyone who's going to make them any better. And I think that's, you know, we can get caught up in the hype of, of transfer window rather than kind of just judging how much the team has improved or, or regressed.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things as well is that when a team doesn't make a quick start, like now, four points from nine games, people can get a little bit anxious about it and can automatically trigger attribute it to the lack of signings. But I don't actually think that's necessarily an issue in this case. And also, sort of talking about tactical changes that have happened, Mourinho coming in and making this thing of the fast start where his teams get off to a flying start and they've almost won the league within like the first 10 match days. It's so difficult to then claw it back. And I know it made Sir Alex Ferguson readjust the way that he set up his teams to peak later. I think the problem Tottenham maybe have at the moment is the Pochettino's team is still uh, set up to peak later in the season. So you see every single time from sort of around about Christmas onwards, they peak and then everything starts to look much rosier because their fitness levels are where they need to be. Uh, The team is a lot more settled and maybe that's just what's lacking at the moment. It's just, it's not quite clicking at the moment because we're not quite up to speed. And that what you're seeing here is sort of 50% of what Tottenham can get. And then as far as like the transfer market goes, it's so much more difficult, I think, to assign squad players. I know that sounds strange because you're not going after like marquee players. But how do you, especially in this transfer market, how can you justify spending 20 £30 million pounds on a player that is only ever going to be a backup? So I think that's difficult. And then it does make sense in that instance for Daniel Levy to wait until deadline day to see if he can get Ross Barkley for £20 million rather than £50 million to be a backup to Ericsson because that player's never going to be a first team regular. I just,
2: I just want to reiterate Michael's point in that it is such an achievement that we've only lost the one player, and maybe another's a bit on the edge. If you, if you look at our squad and, and you look back to um, Modric and Bale and Berbatov, if we had Harry Kane under Yole, if we had Toby Alderweireld under Rednav, we wouldn't have seen them last this summer at all. So it, it's there's a celebrate. It's easy to be annoyed at the moment that the squad is thin and that we're having a slow start, but there's there's a lot that hasn't been celebrated that could be.
1: I think the thing that slightly baffles me is I'm a subscriber to the view that sometimes just a a slight refresh can actually give a psychological boost. And, I mean, Rose said it all in that, you know, he just wants some fresh blood in, basically, and he wants to see the team back. And I think there's something to be said for a new signing, just kind of encouraging other players. And this sounds ridiculous, but I think having a new person in the squad gives you someone you almost want to impress. The other players have a feeling that on the training field they want to impress the new guy and kind of show what they're about and, and particularly if they're having to fight with that new player for a place in the team which can be so vital and we saw it we've seen it with a number of players over the last couple of seasons. Wanyama springs to mind instantly with Dyer, um, and, and Davis and Rose Davis as well. brought out the best in Trippier Rose. Trippier and arguably. Walker as well, yeah. Yeah, Trippier displaced Walker rightly or wrongly towards the end of last season and we've seen how it can have a positive effect on on players Um, so I do find it slightly baffling that we have left it as late as we have Potatino is obviously insistent that he's going to sign three or four more players towards the end of the window Um, and if you want that number of players in, presumably that hasn't changed a great deal over the course of the window so why not get them in a bit sooner I I just I I think clawing as much value as possible from those transfers is one thing but actually it has an impact on
0: the team but hopefully this is something that we don't have to worry about for much longer because it sounds like they're going to change it so that the transfer window closes before the season starts, which I think would be hugely beneficial, Yeah, not Um, least for my fantasy football team. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I'm I'm wild carding. I'm I'm close to wildcarding already. Um, I I presume we'd all agree with that theory, that closing the window before the season starts is a good thing. It seems like a good thing, and it seems pretty logical. Uh,
2: I, I feel the reasoning, I guess, behind delaying the end of the window into the start of the season is to give managers an opportunity to reassess the balance of their squad but i don't think there's anything wrong with punishing a team a club that yeah. fail to do that yeah you know so yeah failing
1: yeah. to prepare is preparing to fail nathan exactly. um i also i kind of think it might just be a neat um timing thing rather than uh anything else i think it's just the fact that it's a it's a neat sort of milestone in the, in the calendar year tax reasons yeah
3: <laughs> well it was always kind of I mean, the transfer window only came in, what, 2004, 2005, Mm. I think. But it always... I mean, there was always a thing in Spain where it was a transfer window, for example. And it it was always open, I think, until the end of August. And then the season started first week of September. So then when they imposed it across Europe, it kind of had to be standardised. But the leagues all started at different times, so it didn't really make sense. So almost the best thing to do would be just to start the season a bit later. Do it that way, I think. You know, get all the leagues starting at the same point and and then it could fall into line but I agree that there's kind of an element of randomness I think to the first three games of the season it just feels doesn't feel real almost and I think a slightly separate note but now that teams are doing so much uh, travelling pre-season for commercial rather than fitness reasons um, again that you know you get teams that just look Physically underprepared or better prepared. I thought it was interesting, and it may have just been an excuse, but I thought um, it was interesting. Mark Noble said at the weekend that one of West Ham's problems at the moment is they've done so much travelling and they had a midweek cup game somewhere, South West maybe, I can't remember where. Um, And the players players just felt knackered and he said, All the travel's caught up with us. And I just, not really what you want from a team that's three games into the season. But it feels like until after this international break, the teams just, a lot of the teams just aren't ready.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy for a player to be essentially feeling jaded, jaded by this point in the season. And, you know, there's something to be said for um, the the commercial travelling, and it's great for, obviously, the, the wider fan base to get to see the, the team up close, but it does undoubtedly have an impact on um, preparations for the season. I think Spurs' were better this year because they were playing a higher class of opposition, and they were actually given a, a proper test. Um,
0: although see, strangely I don't think they learnt that much from playing against Manchester City losing heavily and then it sounded like they had put a lot more intensity into the training session the night before yeah. in more humid and hotter conditions and then had nothing really left for the game and were just kind of ripped open and it didn't really serve a purpose and no one really enjoyed that Well, Manchester City fans <laughs> I suppose would have enjoyed it but I think as a spectacle and as a contest it didn't really offer purely anything purely a
1: fitness exercise yeah. basically Um yeah,
0: Pochino's sort of been
2: fairly vocal about criticizing um, the preseason tours and everything, and it felt like this summer was a slight power move into his direction, where we were back in the country two weeks before, we had a four weeks rest between the last preseason game and the first league game, and that he's sort of winning winning the fight over how things go. So that that's fairly promising on on Spurs' regard, I think.
1: We've got some questions from um, some of our listeners from various platforms i'll start off with tom carriage from facebook i don't think it's the chef tom carriage that would be quite weird if it was um he said i've yet to read the whole of the mixer but it seems that spurs have never really been at the forefront of tactical innovation in the premier league most of it coming from ferguson era manu wenger and maybe the pragmatism of can any of you think of any premier league era tottenham led innovations doesn't parking the bus embarrassingly come from us and that is something you reference in in the book michael
3: yeah, it was that really boring 0-0 draw at the start of 2004-05. Um, and it's just funny that Mourinho introduced the phrase to complain about another manager, <laughs> yeah. which is Jacques Santoni, and he became associated with it being his thing. Um, Tottenham led tactical innovations. I mean, I think really it's, it's the pressing and it's Pochettino. I, I think you could argue, well, it's not even arguable, he was at Southampton before Tottenham and they pressed probably more intensely but I think they didn't really outperform how people expected. They finished kind of eighth, I think, under Pochettino, which was fine, but it wasn't going to kind of you know, tear up any trees. Whereas I think the fact Tottenham are pressing so well and have changed from kind of Champions League challenges into title challenges for the last couple of years means that, um, you know, you look to them. You look to them as the team who have defined this era of pressing.
2: Yeah, I'd agree. I, th- I think uh, Pochettino is a very special manager, and whether he stays at Spurs long term or if he goes off to PSG next year or whatever, he's gonna go down as a- an important manager in the history of football tactics. Um, specifically to Tottenham, I think um, we've had a-, a good history of number tens going back quite a while. Um, n- not hugely innovative in that in that way, but just that we we've been fairly consistent we're fairly historic with sort of exciting attacking number 10s rather than double strikers
1: yeah I mean I was actually gonna say pretty much the same thing Teddy Sheringham was the thing that came to mind I think that obviously there had been strikers that dropped off before but Sheringham is the the striker that did that and one of the first to do it in the Premier League era um, he was almost a 9.5 as most people would um, describe Harry Kane um, Sheringham was probably more of a 10 than a 9 slightly but he scored a lot of goals often from advanced positions with his head um, obviously brilliant at linking play and, and kind of at his element at the edge of the box um, so he was the one that came to mind for me
0: One of the things I found kind of ironic was that it almost seemed when I was reading the book like Spurs were on a delay for all these innovations that you <laughs> <Yeah>. were Yes. <laughs> yes. so um, when uh, Manchester United had four strikers which I guess oh, that's ages ago 1999 that they had these this quartet of strikers. It was then half a decade later, maybe even more, <laughs> And then Tottenham had their quartet of strikers. But then, at that point, Manchester United had moved away, and had just got rid of Ruud van Nistelrooy, and they were going with <laughs> yeah, almost true. like a strikerless with Ronaldo and Rooney. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, when Ch- you have a chapter on the assisters, the, the number 10s, that when they had Chelsea and Arsenal had Cazorla and one matter who were providing through balls we had our number 10 was Raphael van der Vaart who was <laughs> yeah. just the purest goal scorer you could get it was almost like a big man little man so I found it funny how all these stages we seem to be slightly behind up until you get to Pochettino when suddenly we are the innovators which I think is great
1: and you could you could throw in the inverted wingers and three at the back exactly, that list yeah. as well.
0: at the point when Redknapp was using two out and out wingers Jose Mourinho is winning the Champions League with two inverted wingers. So we always seem to be just slightly off-kilter of what was in vogue and winning stuff at that time, until now, maybe.
3: Yeah, that's a great shout. And, and Sheringham's a great shout as well. I hadn't really considered him in that sense, but he was... Um... I-, I always found it interesting that there was, like, two Teddy Sheringham things. There was the Teddy Sheringham role, which was obviously playing as number 10, and there's Teddy Sheringham run, which was to the near post. I was, like, just no-one else was doing him. He also so, yeah. had the Teddy
1: Sheringham corner. Which was yeah, a tactical exactly, innovation yeah. in itself. That kind of drill ball from Anton to the uh, the near edge of the box, which he scored from a fair few times. I loved cherry him. My first, my first big love as a as a Spurs player. I, I adored watching him play. Um, we have a question from Chris Biggs on Twitter, at Chris Biggs11, who says, Spurs have repeatedly struggled against teams playing the high press, brackets Liverpool City. How do we remedy this? I mean, we've got some of the greatest tactical minds in, uh, on the Spurs Twitter and, and the wider Twitter community here. So how do we, how do we solve this problem?
2: It's something that I was uh, planning to have a really sort of in-depth look at, the various ways, how we uh, haven't played Liverpool many times when we've been cemented in our first-choice options, how we can change things subtly, but then looking at Liverpool this year, looking at the increase of high-pressing teams in the league, I, I think there's only one answer now, and that is that you have to play deep, you have to play long, and there just isn't another
0: way. I don't think Pochettino will ever do that, though. No. I think one of the key characteristics beyond the tactics um, is he's such a mentality and kind of passionate manager he wants passion from his players and when he talks about aggressivity he's not talking about getting in tackles he's talking about the aggression of the line he's talking about how aggressive you are of your passing how bold you are of your passing so he wants the team to take risks and the more risks they take the more he likes it the more risks he takes the more likely a team like Liverpool absolutely destroys you especially at Wembley
1: yeah I'm, I'm slightly terrified about playing Liverpool this year I must admit
3: yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Nathan said. I mean, the only thing I'd add would be, and this is a slightly pedantic point, but th- they're both very good teams of and City. You know, some, you know, big games, you come up against good teams and you sometimes lose. I'd be more concerned on a stylistic level if, if Spurs played Swansea every year and lost because of a high press or that kind of thing. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it always comes back to style, which is maybe not in keeping with with you know my, my writing. But uh, it reminds me a little a little bit of Barcelona when. Um, People used to say that you know they struggled against teams who parked the bus because they lost to Chelsea in that semi-final and Inch in that semi-final. But also they beat 15, 16 teams in the league who played a, a part of the bus against them. So personally I wouldn't be too concerned. I just think Tottenham have such a cohesive team that disturbing it too much might have long-term negative effects, even if it might you know, be a little bit more effective in that individual game.
1: I think the only time he's really gone for the um, sit deep and hope for the best option was that game against Arsenal, where it did actually work quite well. And I'm surprised he hasn't kind of pulled that one out of the draw at some point since, because it was it was fairly successful. We've got the players that can do it. We've got some good penalty box defenders, so um, the options there. I
2: think with as we've mentioned, uh, uh, Liverpool and City and Huddersfield pressing teams in the league, um, with our Champions League draw and with Wembley, if there was ever going to be a season that he did adopt a more direct style of play than it would be this one. And if he doesn't do it this season, then he's never going <laughs> to do, do it.
1: We have got a question specifically for you, Nathan, um, from Jack Rich, Twitter, at Jake Reich. Uh He says, can you explain a bit about your discussion with the football manager guy... And what that discussion was about, he means Miles Jacobson, I guess.
2: Yeah, I was talking to him about expected goals. Do you want me to explain expected goals overarching or just that particular conversation?
1: Go for it, because I think that a number of people will understand the okay. concept, but some people may not.
2: So expected goals is a statistical uh, measure of how many goals you're likely to have scored... Based on the location and other circumstances of the shots that you've taken. So, for example, uh, Kane has notched up three expected goals this season despite not scoring any. So, it's fair to assume, and you know this because he's Harry Kane, it's fair to assume that the goals will come from him. Um, I was talking to Miles about it um, because his game doesn't include it in the sort of the post game stats. And. Uh, his, uh, He had some criticisms of expected goals in general and they're all they're all fair and reasonable criticisms of, of why the model is imperfect or why various different models are imperfect. Uh, my counterpoint was that because he owns the game completely, because he owns all of the potential analysis of the game, that from his game he could create or hire someone to create the perfect model. Um, but he wasn't particularly interested.
0: Maybe the problem there is that when I'm playing football manager, our batter teams have about 18 shots on target and lose one nil so maybe if it then came up with an expected goal saying I created five <laughs> expected goals it would just highlight how flawed the game engine actually is it could be it's definitely not my management that's the issue it's the game engine I just want to stress that
1: <laughs> I do admire the fact that um, Miles is always so willing to converse with people when he gets a lot of stick on Twitter but he, he does he does reply and Michael you, you're you quite um, you're like a Twitter spat you've had a few over yeah, the years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every um,
3: day yeah, usually, uh, it's usually when I'm on a train, actually, <laughs> I'm a bit bored. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's um,
0: yeah, well, no, I mean, we... it's usually good fun, but yeah. I think
3: it's it's such a change in kind of the way the football media and the way football journalists interact, you know, and I think a lot of people, obviously, I'm kind of from the social media age, if you like, but I know you know have a lot of older journalists who for the first twenty 20 20-25 years of their career they kind of did their match reports and they were in the paper and that was that and now they put it up and they're getting called every name under the sun and um much as yeah some of these interactions can be uh, petty and futile, uh, many involving myself I must admit I think uh, the fact that journalists are kind of held to account and you know supporters watch every game their teams play you know and no journalist that covers more than one team can do that and I do think that uh, it's kind of raised the standard of football writing you have to you have to know an incredible amount of mm. stuff these days if you're a football writer i mean there's there's people who claim to know unheard of kids from liga and so you, you know whether or not they're faking it you kind of have to uh do your research
1: it's i do i do find it fascinating and i also i mean i find your the way you deal with trolls generally is fascinating so many people just ignore <laughs> twitter trolls um and I kind of got the impression that you enjoyed the sort of back and forth to, to a degree. But I, I, I get the impression now from the way you described it, you just sort of dip in and out when you've got a spare moment and when you're bored, which is kind of the same as what I do. Um, and then you get people saying, well, he never responds to me when I have a go at him. And it sort of creates this kind of endless loop of, of abuse. Well, I imagine you're called a tactics nonce on a daily basis, aren't you?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but the thing that's changed, I think, is now that Twitter's changed, so this is getting really in-depth, but... You know, now sometimes you get replies coming up on your uh, feed from people you follow to people you don't follow, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, before, if someone said, Oh, I think your work is out of rubbish, you could just have a go back at them. Whereas now you can't because it will come up in everyone's feed and you'll look really unprofessional. So, yeah. you can't, I, I don't think you can be as petty anymore, which is probably a good thing. But as you can tell from my tone, I'm very disappointed about it. <laughs>
1: So the, the answer basically is you have to rise above, which is uh, yeah. which is a shame in many ways because yeah. it's enjoyable. So something we do on this podcast is is we recommend further reading or or further things to go in and, and research or listen to. Um, and I guess I'll, I'm happy to kick this off this time. I've really really enjoyed a piece by uh, Carlo Valadarez. Uh, I'm kind of guessing on the pronunciation there is at c underscore v underscore news on Twitter and he wrote a piece um, about potential Spurs signing Juan Foyth for com. really in-depth and fascinating piece in which he'd taken footage from the very few senior games that Juan has played and analysed it to a a quite amazing level in terms of the way he plays out from the back, how he defends one-on-one, how he defends as part of the unit, and it was a really comprehensive and interesting piece of work Um, so I definitely recommend searching that out you can probably find it through just searching his, his, his at on Twitter with the word Foyth I can't imagine he's written many pieces about that player Um, so it'll probably come up, but yeah, do read that.
2: Good fella, good site, good article. I write for as well. Uh, this is cheesy, forgive me. There's a site you might have heard of called uh, zonalmarking.net. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, you can go all the way back to 260-odd articles, 260-odd pages, back to your work in 2010. And and plenty of those articles, especially the sort of more uh, overarching thematic articles, still uh, hold well today. So I recommend going through the history of zonal marking.
1: That's
3: That's very kind, thank you very much. Um, A book I've just read that really enjoyed uh, and really enjoyed, sorry, is a a book by Stephen Constantine who's been well he spent the last 20-25 years managing all sorts of national teams around the world he's an english guy he's been in charge of india he's been in charge of sudan he's worked in cyprus he's barely been able to get a job in the conference in england but he's just written this autobiography um ghost written by a guy called owen amos who's a really good um, journalist who writes uh focus on english coaches abroad and just some of the stories on it uh, in it are absolutely incredible it's It's obviously a book about football, but just his stories of managing a team away in North Korea and going over the border and getting all your electronic things uh, confiscated and the lengths he has to go to to find players and scout players when he's working in various African countries. It's just a really, really interesting book uh, from a guy who I think probably deserves more attention in his homeland.
0: Um, Yeah, I actually read an article by Wright Thompson on uh, Conor McGregor recently, and then that got me going back over lots of old articles that he's written, and he's got to be one of the best writers that there is out there. He goes back into just immense detail. There's some amazing articles that I know they're a bit old, but I would really recommend going back and looking at. There's one on Luis Suarez where he sort of researches the characteristics of Suarez and what made the player and his drive to get to Barcelona, and it's just phenomenally well-researched. Um, so, yeah, I would recommend just looking back over any articles by him. There was an article in The Telegraph on Pochettino that I thought was really good, where the reporter sort of doorsteps Pochettino's parents in Murphy. And that's kind of another really interesting insight into you know the person before the manager, before the footballer, which I always find interesting. And then not to blow smoke up your uh, nether regions, there is um, a book out at the moment called The Mixer, which, yeah, I genuinely, I really enjoyed it. And I thought, actually, sometimes certain other tactics books can get a bit bogged down in... The mechanics of it and the history and like details that I, sometimes I find it a bit of a struggle to read them but I thought yours was really easy to read and as Chris said at the start, the sort of asides are so good, like there's one about Rio Ferdinand being Bugsy Malone and there's a, a thing about people journalists thinking that Cantonar had thought Rambo was a philosopher and yeah, things like that yeah, I yeah, found yeah, so yeah. funny and they just you know, made it so easy to read so I thought that was really enjoyable
3: no, thanks very much yeah hopefully it's fun as well like I say it was um there hadn't really been a comprehensive history of the Premier League, so I hope that it's kind of a history of the league as well as just the, the tactical aspect
1: yeah thank you so much for coming on michael it's been it's been great to have you on I mean not least because you've got this book out, but also just your your um your knowledge of tactics has inspired many people on on Spurs Twitter without a shadow of a doubt i mean i I remember following you very early on on twitter um and I was definitely inspired by some of the some of your writings and and not to say that i would i would write in a similar way because i don't have i don't think i have the detailed knowledge that you have but um you you certainly inspired a number of my articles back in the day thank you so much for coming on and um how would people how do people follow you on social media what are your oh
3: i'm zonal marking or zonal underscore marking on twitter and uh yeah i think just zonal marking on facebook but yeah, Google will do the trick if you're that interested.
1: Cool, and obviously you can continue to listen to Michael on various awesome podcasts this year as well—the Totally Football Show and Guardian Football Weekly. Nathan, how can people follow <laughs> you on Twitter?
2: I'm no longer at TT Tactics. I'm at Nathan A Clark. Uh, but the 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 blog is still Tottenham Tactics WordPress and all of the rest. But you can find it all through my Twitter.
1: Cool, lovely, good to have you back, Nathan. And you and how about you? What's your, what's
0: Just your Twitter at heart? Ewan Roberts. That's it, yeah. Got in very early, got a nice one, yeah. Yeah, that's
1: a very good app. I mean, you've got a a slightly unusual first name, but you'd expect a fair few Ewan Roberts out there. It's a very famous one.
0: I do occasionally get tweets from people thinking I am the former Norwich striker, <laughs> which it, one of them was the agent of Gary Lineker, who also happens to be a friend with Ewan Roberts, oh. and he was messaging me like we were meeting up later. And I didn't really know like if I should intervene in this conversation where I was getting atted, but it was not clearly not me that was supposed to be the intended recipient. And then later on I saw a picture of Gary Lineker, this agent, and Ewan Roberts at the at some kind of event. I thought this is just surreal. What's going on here? And then actually, weirdly, one time I was at Craven Cottage and Ewan Roberts was also there. And uh, <laughs> did you have to
1: introduce yourself? Well, no.
0: I think Chris Kamara went. All right, Ewan. And I turned around. Oh my god, Chris Kamara knows my name. And then. You and Roberts reporting for, like, the Cardiff <laughs> Times or something was sitting behind me. And I was like, OK, yeah, that's not me that you're looking for. And then just sort of, like, awkwardly walked away. Oh, to...
1: I was really hoping that you were going to say that you had to introduce yourself to him and he thought you were taking the piss out of him. No, but...
0: well, I didn't know what to say because usually people would be... I wouldn't say he was, like, the best-looking footballer. No. So let's just say that sometimes people could be uh quite harsh about that so i didn't want to go oh yeah people used to take the piss out of me <laughs> yeah. like, that would be a bit weird so yeah, i thought best to just run away basically
1: do follow you on twitter because he's he's a very modest man but um i would say he's one of the most insightful spurs tweeters out there he doesn't tweet very much but he always gets it bang on when he does thank you everyone for listening um Hope you've enjoyed it. As ever, leave us plenty of feedback. Um, Please rate the podcast on iTunes as well. And if you have any ideas for talking points, you can contact us on um, Facebook. This is the Fighting Cock on Facebook or Love the Shirt on Twitter. You can contact me at Windy Coy's directly on Twitter. And we'll hopefully be back in four to six weeks.
3: Welcome to Bose Recommends. This is the place to discover your new favourite podcast. Every week, we listen to hundreds of shows to bring you our favourites. And this is one we think you're going to love.
0: Hello, I'm Rob Deering. This is Paul Tomkinson. Good morning. We are Running Commentary, or we create Running Commentary. It's our our podcast. We are, and we're very excited to be part of Bose Recommends. We certainly are. Thank you, Bose. And uh, listen to Running Commentary. As you can hear, hopefully hear, we record it while we're running. That's it. We're talking about running whilst running. For runners, but people listen to it when they're not running. That's right, and we often talk about other things. I mean it's not we just talk about things. everything. It's life. It's, it's life stuff. Yeah. Bit of running advice, bit of life stuff. A few laughs. Bit of slapstick, bit of fun. Stop it, a bit of a story, why not? Yeah. So, so drinking. <laughs> <laughs> it's the city of running and drinking podcast. We've done 100 episodes and counting yeah, up. It comes you? out every week, every Thursday. So, listen to running commentary on your favourite podcast app, Acast, iTunes. Go for it.
3: That was this week's Bose Recommends, the place to discover your new favourite show. If you want to find out how you can enjoy podcasts and even better sound quality, visit bose.co.uk. Bose. Get closer.